So it looks like it's my job to uh, to speak into this uh, like very beautiful silence in the in the hall and um, in the space around. Yeah, which is not easy at the moment. It feels like quite, uh, yeah, quite a almost like sacrilege to to speak into into this beautiful silence of the night. So what I want to speak about to explore together this evening is something that um, that we we see as we practice, something that we start to see when we spend time like we have been over the last 48 hours, really kind of simplifying our lives and spending a lot of time looking internally at what is actually going on. And something that that we see, which might not be new when I say it, but is really worth paying attention to, something that we see is the way in which we view everything we view everything, including ourselves and our experience, to some degree as solid, as separate, as permanent, <coughs> or in Dharma language, as having an inherent existence. Quite a thing to say, very beautiful, having an inherent existence. And it's something that we begin to see, and at the same time, it's really worth also turning the attention to more, you know, that this is happening, that this is actually underlying the totality of our experience, all of it, you know, whether it's, um, you know, both external and internal things. So, you know, internally, the whole realm of our experience, the physical sensations, the emotional life, the thoughts, you know, all of that, to some degree, we're seeing as solid, as separate, as inherently existing. And I think, you know, last night, Nathan was giving an example of that. You know, we, we, we have a thought that has some um, stickiness or some, some strength to it. And we, we give that thought, or that thought is given, authority. Yeah, it's given solidity. It's given weight. You know, really, pretty much automatically, that, that happens, that process happens. And similarly, externally. You know, something outside of, if we can say that, but... <laughs> That's, what, that's how it happens, something, something external that we see as separate, as solid, as having some kind of inherent nature or identity. 
And you know, that's other people, events, things. And so this, it's really worth turning our attention to this. And, you know, even looking at that as, as you're listening now, you know, just looking at that as you're listening now, it's really worth turning our attention um, to it because this is how we relate to the world. You know, we're relating to the world from this kind of view all the time, you know, and if we put it very um, kind of coarsely, you know, the view of, you know, here's me, you know, here's me. <laughs> I've got some kind of boundary somewhere, some kind of identity, some kind of characteristics. And there's you or it or that or whatever it is somewhere else. And our whole relationship is based on that, our relationship to life. So I or me, I meet something else, you or it or that. And of course, sometimes that something else is inside. <laughs> you know, I think maybe we're starting to get the kind of why it's interesting. Because <laughs> there's I, there's me, there's that sense of identity, and then I'm meeting something, but that something is in here. But it's not me, or it is me. <laughs> and there's a sense of, ah, there's both have solidity. There's solidity, but it's, do you see? <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit funny, actually. But that's, that is the way we operate to a great degree. And when we practice, when we, we kind of turn our attention, when we start looking at, at these ways of, of being, of relating to experience, we, we actually begin to see what I was just a little bit pointing to now. We begin to see that this isn't a very um, useful way of relating to life. It's not a very useful way. And it actually leads to suffering. We can see that when we look even more clearly at the processes. It actually leads to suffering. Because if there's me, I, something solid, and there's that, or it, or them, or you, that separation. So I want it, or I don't want it. You know, aversion arises in relationship, clinging arises in relationship, and all of that causes suffering. And if we really kind of look at what it is, it's that sense of something being real. You know, if I say it really bluntly, something here is real, you know. I am real. You know, I am this. And you are that. Or you, you know, I am this and I am that. You know, and the two are in conflict, in disharmony. So I, I just want to throw in another example of this. If, if this, if, you know, because maybe this, this is kind of, um, might be quite, um, I want to say dense this evening. Let's see. <laughs> so... I'm just going to throw in another example that I was just, it just came to me when we were meditating before. I thought, oh yeah, another example of this is, you know, we're all sitting here together. You're all listening. 
Yeah. Only one person is speaking. And yet, I can guarantee <laughs> that at the, if at the end of this talk, someone came and asked each of you what I spoke about, <laughs> it would be a little bit different. Yeah? Or a lot different sometimes, you know? Because that, you know, it's not that objective. It's not that, ah, there's a, a talk and the talk means this. And everyone is going to hear the same thing. It's not that objective. It's not that separate. You know, this is you in the listening are as active as I am in the speaking. Yeah? So the listening in each, through each mind, body here is different. <laughs> it's not the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's not the same. And it's, so we, we take something, ah, a talk, you know, it's even, there's even notes, you know, it's solid, it's, it's a thing. But then that talk meets different people. You know, and let's make it even more interesting. If I was to give the same talk tomorrow from the same notes, I can guarantee it's not going to be the same talk. It's not going to be the same talk. And you wouldn't hear it the same. You know, you might find it a little boring. We could do an experiment. <laughs> I could come every evening <laughs> and give the same talk from the same notes. <laughs> so it might be a bit boring, yeah, because we, we would zone out. But if we could kind of generate a fresh listening every time, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be the same. So, yeah, really, really interesting. So this way of, of separation, of solidity, of, of giving things inherent existence is really important to remember. It's very natural. It's, it's the way we operate. So it's not that we're doing something wrong. You know, this is really important to say. It's not that by doing this, by, by this happening, I'm doing something wrong and I should learn a different way of doing it. It's the natural way that our minds operate. It's the natural way that we function in the world. But it's very helpful to start to open and to see that this is what's going on. Because, again, when we look at it and really look at it, look into it for yourself, we can see that it leads to suffering, that it can lead to a lot of suffering for us. So again, if we use the, you know, the, some of the examples Nathan gave last night, you know, I'm, I'm meditating, um, I notice I've been distracted, a judgmental thought arises, you know, you're a bad meditator again, you know, you've messed up again, whatever it is. And then there's, uh, we believe it, and then there's a contraction around that. And that contraction, that reaction that we have increases the painfulness, actually becomes more painful. So if the judgmental thought was already painful, this becomes more painful because we're, we're trying to, to push away the pain. 
So Dharma teachings really um, work quite hard <laughs> to, to show us ways to reduce suffering or to free us from suffering. You know, they're offering us another possibility. And they're suggesting that there's other ways of looking that are not this separate, solid, inherently existent. Other ways of looking that can reduce suffering. That can reduce suffering. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of repeat things quite a bit, so I apologize for that, but it's just because it's, it's so important. You know, the difference between ways of looking that reduce suffering and ways of looking that, um, that bring suffering is whether they're, what, what they're rooted in, you know, what they're rooted in. And so this sense of separation and solidity and inherent existence is, is rooted in what in Dharma teachings is called ignorance. The Pali word is avidya. Ignorance, delusion, again, that sense of separateness and solidity. That we are somehow independent, exist independently. And ways of seeing that reduce suffering or dissolve suffering are um, rooted in wisdom, rooted in wisdom, in the understanding that we and things are not separate, not solid, not permanent, not independent of each other not independent of each other. And so there's a real invitation to explore this for yourself, you know, a very classic practice of just, you know, looking for where is this I that I'm identified with all the time, or so much of the time, you know, where is it? Looking for it. And just going back to that, you know, example of just like, you know, here we are, we're sitting here, you're all listening to the same thing. And isn't it amazing that you're not hearing the same thing? Yeah? Isn't it amazing? So opening to that part that our mind and the way we perceive things, actually it, it plays a part in shaping our experience and shaping even in what we think of as reality. Yes. It's amazing. <laughs> Sorry if you're not, yeah, I'm just like, wow, it's amazing. <laughs> it really is amazing to, to see this, you know, to, to get a feeling of it. And sometimes um, I think what's amazing about these teachings is that sometimes we can feel it, you know, even if it's like, oh, I don't quite know that I've had this experience, but there's a sense of a resonance, something in us that resonates with that. And I was remembering recently, um, I was remembering the, the first silent retreat that I did, and um, it was in the Tibetan tradition, and that was the essence of the teaching was this, you know, emptiness. And, you know, I was like just beginning to meditate, <laughs> but there was just sense, such a sense of resonance. So there's something in us that sometimes re really resonates 
which is incredible. So beginning to see, or kind of opening to seeing that how our own mind plays a part in the creation of experience. It's really radical, and it can sometimes also feel a bit, whoa, you know, a bit scary. You know, our own mind plays a part in the creation of our experience, of all experience. In, in Dharma language, it's called fabrication, this process. Fabrication. You know, it's to, a type of creation. You know, to fabricate is to create. But it also has in it some sense of creating some sense of illusion. What we're creating is some degree of illusion. Now, really important here, I'm not saying life is an illusion. <laughs> and I'm not saying that your experience or my experience or our experience is an illusion. Really important to kind of, in the Buddha, when he was asked about these kind of, you know, these questions, you know, is life an illusion or not an illusion? He would say, it's not an illusion and it's not not an illusion. <laughs> you know? He, and, and he was very interested, you know, in his teachings, he was very interested not in giving us, um, ab- like, truths or answers, but actually giving us. Um, ways of understanding our experience and applying that understanding so that uh, we can reduce suffering. That was, that was his, um, you know, the, the essence of and the trajectory of his teaching. So, you know, there's many, many places in the suttas where he's being asked these questions, you know, is there existence or not? You know, is there existence an illusion, not an illusion? He always answers in this way. Is there a self? Isn't there a self? What did he say back? <laughs> Is there a self? Isn't there a self? There's not a self, nor a non-self. <laughs> you know, always this middle way, staying in the questioning. Staying in the questioning. So how does this um, process of fabrication work a little bit? I'm just going to touch on it a little bit today. So when we look closely at our inner life, you know, I, you know, I, I feel like I've given a great example already, but I'll try and give more, <laughs> give a, a, an example of the listening. But when we look at our inner life, we begin to see that how we perceive things or how we understand things is, is shaped to a great degree by some, you know, what's underlying, our underlying attitude or views or... Um, mind states, you know, or physical state, yeah? If I'm sick or I'm tired, that shapes how I perceive things. You know, I think we all know that experience. You know, my mood, my energy level, and my underlying views and attitudes. So they all, and they too are not permanent and solid, yeah? They're changing. Energy levels change, body sense changes, views and attitudes change. But there's constantly that play. There's constantly that play. So I want to kind of, I've kind of said this a few times, <coughs> but a really helpful way of seeing this process of fabrication 
is through this lens that um, my friend Rob calls ways of looking. You know, it's kind of like what, you know, we can say, what glasses am I looking through right now that are shaping, are, are helping to create my perception of what's going on? You know, so ways of looking. And so the way we look affects fabrication, affects what is created, what we see and therefore what we experience. So, possibly you've, you, you may have had, I'm going to give another example of this, um, in some of the, of the meditations we've been doing, um, when we've been inviting you to um, relate to the breath as an energy, rather than as just a physical um, happening. Yeah? And so, if... We, if our way of looking, if my way of looking is breath as a physical happening, you know, physical happening, how it happens physically in the body is it goes through the nose or the mouth and into the body, right? Now, if then someone sitting here asks you to feel the breath coming in and out of your navel area, that's going to be pretty hard to do. <laughs> you know, it's going to feel pretty strange. If... I'm looking at the breath as an energy rather than just as the physical process of breathing. Then potentially I can feel the breath going in and out of the back of my neck, you know, or wherever it is. Potentially I can do that. So that's, that's one example of, of how that, um, in a very kind of uh, guided, specific way, how that works. Does that make sense, this example? Some of my notes are in really small writing. Okay. So another example of this. This is something that happens to me a lot. So, you know, if you happen to be a fairly light sleeper like me, you have the experience of being woken up at a time when you don't want to be woken up. <laughs> it's not, not time to get up yet. Um, and say that happens because there's someone else who's making a noise, which in India happens fairly often. And so if I'm lying in bed and my way of looking in that, at that point, my way of looking is that sound woke me up. That person woke me up. My sleep isn't happening. My rest isn't happening. Where does that lead? If you've had that experience, you probably know it does not lead to sleep. It does not lead to sleep. It actually leads to more agitation, more contraction, more tension, more suffering. Now, same situation, same situation. Woken up, tired, noise. If my way of looking is sound happening, sleep not happening, you know, just keeping it very neutral, not contracting around it, not taking it personally. 
then usually what happens is that it's not a problem. This is really interesting. It is not a problem. You know, and I'm really saying this from my personal experience. It's not a problem. Lying there, not sleeping. Not a problem. Sometimes there's the ability to stay relaxed, not take it personally, not tighten around. Sleep actually happens within the noise. Sometimes it doesn't happen. It, you know, I don't fall asleep. But I'm still resting. I'm not, there's not extra agitation. Sometimes, this is when it gets really crazy, it actually becomes enjoyable. It actually becomes enjoyable. Because there's a level of um, aliveness and openness and freedom. You know, there's actual freedom. The external is there. The so-called disturbance is there. But there's freedom from contraction around it and from the suffering that comes with the contraction. So the same event, different ways of looking, different ways of looking, and then a completely different result. Yeah, or very, very different spectrums of suffering. So this is really good news. <laughs> this is really good news. And again, to really emphasize, it's not about you know, giving ourselves good or bad marks. It's not about, oh, you know, when, we, when, we, when our way of looking is one of um, tensing, of taking things personally, of a small self. It's not about feeling that we're doing something wrong. It's about cultivating the remembering and the ability to shift that. And often what we need is to remember that we can. Yeah? To remember that we can, that that's not, this is not real in the sense that it's not um, solid and limited and definite. It's not solid, limited, definite. Not real in the sense of this is it. Deal. <laughs> you know, we can have some effect, some play with it. And we can cultivate the ability to do that. So the good news is that we can learn to both shift our ways of looking and cultivate ways of looking that are more um, skillful and more freeing. More skillful and more freeing. So another um, example of this, which is, I think, very... Um, that we all know. You know, the, the same situation that can happen and... Either I'm, you know, caught up in some very sticky mind state, a papancha train that Nathan was speaking about yesterday. You know, that anything that comes up kind of activates that train and it starts going faster or becoming longer. So that's one way of looking. So papancha is actually a way of looking. It's a way of relating to our experience. 
so I'm in that Papancha state of mind and, you know, I'm walking um, down the path and someone smiles at me. And so just something really simple like that, someone smiles at me and that, you know, creates more Papancha. Oh, why are they smiling at me? Do they think I'm having a hard time? Can they see, you know, what a crap meditator I am? Are they feeling sorry for me? You know, whatever it is, it just kind of activates that. Same thing. different place on the spectrum of ways of looking, just what we would call um, kind of ordinary mind state. So there's not a lot of intensity in the mind, but it's just a daily kind of, you know, going around our, going around doing our own thing. Someone smiles at us. We probably don't even notice, <laughs> or don't even register. But it might have an effect. That effect will come out in another way, you know, so there's a spectrum here, another point on the spectrum, we're mindful, we're mindful, someone smiles at me, ah, pleasant, that was nice, noticing maybe the beginning of some proliferation or activity, but with the mindfulness able to just stay with just that experience, as it was, you know, not making more of it. And so we can see that ways of looking, again, it's not bad, good, black, white. It's a spectrum. And this is really helpful. We're a spectrum from mindfulness to papancha. It's not different. You know, it's not the good and the bad, what we want and what we don't want. It's a spectrum. And if it's a spectrum, it gives us more possibility to shift along, to shift along that spectrum. So I want to kind of um, go into a little bit, a bit more um, practically how to do this or how to work with it. And I hope you have the energy. And I want to actually use for this part, um, use um, something that comes up in meditation practice quite a lot. Um, which is the five hindrances, which most of you have probably heard of. And surprise, surprise, the five hindrances are also ways of looking. Yeah? They're also ways of looking. And I'll, I'll say a little bit about what they are. So the five hindrances are, hindrance kind of means obstacle. They're obstacles that come up, they they take over, they grab our attention and they block, they're obstacles to mindfulness and presence. Yeah, that's what they're blocking. That's what they're hindering. So they're, they're, by blocking or hindering mindfulness, they also block the further de- development of wisdom and understanding that is, is reliant on mindfulness. 
So again, really important to remember ways of looking, they're habits of mind and they're very strong, very common habits of mind that affect all of us. And the five are, in case you've forgotten or you don't know, desire, aversion, it's my personal favorite coming up, sloth and turpa. Just got to love the language. Sloth and turpa, otherwise known as dullness and low energy. Yeah, dullness and low energy. The third is um, restlessness and worry or anxiety. Restlessness and worry and anxiety. And the fifth is doubt. And the doubt includes the self-doubt, um, includes you know, doubt in others, it includes doubt, doubt in the practice, doubt in the teachings. Um, just doubt in all its manifestations. So these are, you know, five incredibly common states of mind. And in meditation, they particularly, they come up a lot and they really affect our practice. And so it's actually really helpful to, to A, start to notice when they're there, to get to know them, and to get to know the way they affect the way they affect our seeing, the way they affect our perception, and then how to work with them. And the Buddha spoke a lot about the hindrances, and he's got some really beautiful um, similes. I learned this word today. I didn't know how to pronounce it. And then I found out it was simile, which is <laughs> really cute. So... This is one of the Buddha's similes about um, the hindrances. And uh, in this simile, he speaks about our mind being like um, a pool of water that's so clear that we can see our reflection in it. It's like a mirror. It's so clear. And that's the natural state of the mind. You might not recognize it. (laughs) That's the natural state of the mind. It's so clear. It's like a clear pool of water that we can see our reflection in. So when sense desire, the first hindrance, when that arises or is present in the mind, it's as if someone sprinkled dye, colored dye in the water. So the water is colored, you know, it's not clear anymore, it's colored by sense desire. And so this is what desire does to us. It colors the perception, colors the perception. When aversion arises or is present in the mind, it's as if the water in the pool is boiling. It's like it's bubbling, it's boiling. There's steam coming up. And through the, uh, you know, that's what aversion feels like actually. We're in a state of, of turbulence. And again, again, we can't see clearly because of this turbulence, this boiling of the water. When sloth and turpa, when dullness is there, it's like the pool is overgrown with algae. Yeah, there's a real sense of stagnation. Yeah, like there's no freshness. There's no air. It's overgrown, completely blocked up, choked up. 
like a weighing down of the mind that again affects our clear seeing. We can't see clearly because the mind is weighed down. When restlessness, anxiety and worry are present in the mind, the pool of water is like a pool of water um, that has um, is constantly being agitated and stirred up by wind, you know, and the leaves that fall when the wind blows, and there's constant agitation. And again, we can't really see clearly. Again, blocks our 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 seeing. And when doubt is present in the mind, it's like the pool is the water is very muddy. It's very very muddy, so we can't see the bottom. Again, really murks up. And I really, um, I really love this. I, I kind of feel it's so clear. These images are so clear. And I could see kind of, I think I could see some smiles and nods of like, oh yeah, I know that. <laughs> I know that feeling. I know that experience. And I feel like it really um, illustrates for us how the ways of looking affect the perception. You know, so if desire is there, it's a way of looking. I'm looking through the glasses of, of desire. And that's impacting on what I see. You know, if aversion is there, very clear with aversion. You know, looking through these glasses of aversion, it's affecting what I see. And it's definitely affecting the clarity of my mind, affecting also what I don't see. So knowing this, just knowing, you know, sometimes um, we recognize that a hindrance is present. And there's not much more that we can do, but just knowing that a hindrance is present can keep us in contact of this isn't all there is. You know, it feels like, it feels like the truth. It feels real. It feels like this is everything that's going on. But I know it's not. I know it's not. It's just the present way of looking. So ways of working with the, with the hindrances and ways of working with, actually, these are ways of looking again, shifting the ways of looking. And I'm just going to, you know, give these ways of looking which are applicable, um, these ways of working with the hindrances which are applicable to all five. Yeah, to all five of them. So the first one is, I've already touched on it, is to recognize yeah, to just recognize that a hindrance is present. You know, it's, it's amazing how liberating that can be. You know, often we're struggling, struggling, struggling in meditation. There's actually, ah, you know, there's desire. Or there's aversion or there's doubt. That's really affecting. So noticing that an, a hindrance is present, recognizing it, naming it if possible, and then seeing if we can just take a few breaths with it. You know, we're not trying to change it. We're not trying to push it away. Just taking a few breaths with it, just breathing with it. Remembering this is a natural happening. It's not something that I'm doing wrong. It's not something that I'm doing wrong. This is a natural happening. It can equally be interesting if we've had, you know, quite a intense workout with some hindrances to notice the absence of the hindrance or hindrances. You know, to notice, ah, 
you know, actually there's no aversion right now. Or there's no tiredness and dullness. You know, there's energy, there's brightness. So to notice also the absence of. And so doing this really creates some breathing space around the hindrance. Again, it, it strengthens that knowing that the hindrance isn't the whole picture. You know, it's taking up, seems to be taking up all the space, but it's not the whole, it's not everything. Yeah, and it kind of opens up the breathing space around that. You know, that ability to recognize the hindrance is not impacted by the hindrance. It's not impacted by the hindrance. The second way of working with hindrances is allowing, allowing. And again, this increases the space through actually relaxing. So often when there's a hindrance present, um, there's actually a lot of tension and contraction building up because it's not a pleasant experience. It's not something we like. So it's actually a lot of contraction and tension when we allow, when we say, okay, hindrance is present. This allows more space, the relaxation. We let go of the struggle against. And often the struggle against or with the hindrance is actually feeding it. This is also very interesting. So we let go of that struggle. And we can do this relaxing with, we can do it physically, you know, often by just relaxing the body. So the hindrance is affecting the mind. But can I relax the body? Can I scan through the body, bring relaxation through the body? We can do it using the breath energy. We can do it with um, something that Nathan was touching on yesterday, metta, towards that hindrance or the way it's unfolding in the mind or the difficulty we have with it. And so this begins a process of getting to know it more, of becoming more familiar with it and how it operates, which leads us to the next way of working with the hindrance, which is investigate. Investigate. And so... One way of looking at this is we take what is difficult and challenging and what is actually you know, blocking us from where we want to go and we take that and we actually use it. We make it an object of mindfulness. We make it um, a tool for liberation by turning our attention to it and starting to investigate, to look at it more deeply. So looking at how it manifests in the body. You know, where is it in the body? How is it in the body? You know, how is it in the mind? What is it like in the feeling life? Is there anything that feeds or strengthens it? You know, is there anything that feeds or strengthens it? Are there any conditions that underlie it? You know, sometimes it's something very simple, you know, the smell of someone cooking. And we get really desirous of having food, you know. It's a very simple condition. It's like, ah, okay.
sometimes it's actually lack of interest that's underlying a hindrance. You know, there's a lack of interest in our experience. Or an imbalance of energy and calm. You know, sometimes, especially with the practices that we've been doing, which are very calming, we find ourselves going into dullness because there's an imbalance with energy, so we need to bring more energy. Or if there's a lot of restlessness, we need to bring more calm. You know, so sometimes it's an imbalance that's underlying. You know, sometimes it's as simple as adjusting the posture. You know, the physical posture is, you know, we're getting slumpy, there's more dullness and tiredness. We adjust the, po- the posture, it affects the mind also. We can also start to investigate if, if, you know, I've just touched on it, what can weaken it? What can weaken it? Is it constant? Really interesting one. You know, it feels very solid, it feels very constant, but is it? Or does it change? Does it have a spectrum of intensity? Starting to look at it to turn interest and investigation. How does it affect perception? How does it affect perception? Can you handle one more? I know you're tired. It's, it's a long talk. <sighs> right. So the fourth one, the fourth way of working with, um, with hindrances is, is not identifying. Not identifying. So seeing the hindrance as something conditioned, something that is also transient and changing something that's influenced by different factors. So kind of starting to unravel the fabrication of its solidity and permanence and the heaviness that it brings with it. Seeing our own potential to do that, to be involved in that kind of um, unraveling or making it less dense, less solid. And... You know, there's some questions that we can ask that really help in this process of non-identification. You know, how does it change? How does the hindrance change when I, when I bring interest to it? How does it change? Just looking. How does it change when I don't freak out? You know, if I have a tendency to freak out. How does it change if I don't freak out, if I stay calm and steady? How does it change if I come back to um, a sense of spacious breathing, you know, or the body? How does that change? What happens if I use a very soft, soft label like not me or mine, you know, to help disentangle that relationship, that stickiness? You know, not me, not mine. So these four ways of, of working with the hindrances, and some of you may know it, you know, that recognize, allow, investigate, and not identify, they actually make up an acronym, RAIN, which makes it a little bit easier to remember them. They're very useful in working with hindrances and working with other kind of sticky, sticky um, 
situations that we find ourselves internally in. So the hindrances are ways of looking and these ways of working with the hindrances are also ways of looking, you know, ways of looking that can free us or that can um, disentangle us at least to some degree and reduce suffering at least to some degree. So I think that's going to have to be it for this evening. And maybe we'll just have a, um, a quiet moment together to, to bring this to a close. So may our practice together nourish ways of looking that bring ease and freedom. May our practice together nourish ways of looking that reduce suffering and identification. So that we can be of service so that we can be of use to all of life in all its forms and manifestations. So thank you for your listening and co-creating. And we have about 15 minutes for whatever you wish to do next, walking, sitting, lying, standing, breathing, and then we'll meet back here for the last sitting of the day.